Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. It's Thursday night. It's 29 and a bit minutes past seven. It's May the 25th, 1978. And I, Al Needham, and my compatriots Taylor Parks and Neil Kulkarni are loving the polyester look of this episode of Top of the Pops. Hey up, you pop-crazed youngsters. Welcome back to part three of episode 54 of Chart Music. Let's not fanny about, let's rejoin the episode in progress. I said I must decide how to go. Is she mine? I want to know. If you think long, you think wrong, so don't think too long. Sound is the heat wave, mind-blowing decisions. As if you didn't know it, Isaac Cohen and Alpha Beta won the Eurovision Song Contest with a number called Arbonne You knew that already, didn't you? But right now they're at number 21 in the top 30 at the moment. And here they are right now with you on top of the pops. Blackburn alone in front of a wash of colour, tells us, in case we didn't know, that the next single won this year's Eurovision Song Contest. Then he fucks up the title, (laughs) calling it a Barney V. Hopefully that isn't something offensive in Hebrew. It's actually a Barney B by Azar Cohen and Alpha Beta. Born in Tel Aviv in 1951, Izar Cohen was part of a family of musicians and spent much of his youth in his dad's band. In 1970, he did his Israeli national service and honed his musical skills in the Lahakat Hahanal, the ensor of the Israeli army. In 1978, he teamed up with the singing group Alpha Beta for Israel Song for Europe with this song, which was picked out to represent the country after the head of their Eurovision committee stated openly that it was the only entry that wasn't cat shit. (laughs) And last month, in Paris, it became the first Eurovision winner from outside Europe, winning by 32 points and battering Baccarat, who were representing Luxembourg, and Cheryl Baker, who was in Coco. 
In the wake of that Eurovision win, an English version of the song was recorded, put out on Polydor, entered the charts at number 27 a fortnight ago, and this week it's up five places from number 26 to number 21. Well, chaps, more Euro nonsense here. <laughs> yeah. 1978... Another year of controversy in Eurovision land, unfortunately. Um, The rule that everybody had to perform in their native language had been put back in place, which so enraged Bjorn Skiffs of Sweden that he planned to sing it in English on the night, and then he changed his mind on stage, forgot the Swedish (laughs) lyrics, and bust it with some gibberish (laughs) that we wouldn't have known anyway. (laughs) More importantly, of course, when it became clear that Israel were going to win, most of the Arabic stations were were broadcasting the contest pulled the plug mm. with Jordanian TV showing a picture of some daffodils to fill the time and Jordanian Terry Wogan announcing that the second place country Belgium had actually won if there's any <laughs> Jordanian listeners out there I'm sorry to break the news to you <laughs> oh and of course Jan Tegen of Norway the most memorable performance he got the first ever null point with uh. mille et mille which is a tune uh, it is in that it has notes in it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is obviously, you know, lower than TK Disco. Mm. Yeah, this is SJ Disco. It's This is barely <laughs> even a fairground ring toss prize. So I'd rather have had a goldfish with three days to live uh, mm. or a, a mirror with Starsky and Hutch on it <laughs> or a soft toy that's too big to carry around the fairground for the rest of the night. But it is catchy. <laughs> Um, yes, it really so. is. That main hook is just insistent enough to get you, which is yeah. usually enough for a competition where the struggle is to remember anything you've just heard. Yes, you know. definitely. Um, yeah. Also, it stands out in the lineup of turkeys that was the Eurovision Song Contest 1978 because it's the only one that sounds faintly exotic. It's not yes. schlager and it's not chanson. It's got roots albeit distant roots in jewish music mm. and that's enough to make it stand out sound a little bit more interesting like a bit of sort yeah. of middle eastern flavor in a in a, a two-hour banquet of mayonnaise uh, yes. it basically it's it's zoom galley galley with its flares on looking for love yes. <laughs> you know work on the land by day boogie by night and it, it, it is better than the fucking swiss entry i'll give it that the Hebrew version of the song, of course, was aired on Top of the Pops a fortnight ago, uh, but we're, we're being treated to the English one here. But the lyrics are entirely different. The version we're getting here is essentially saying, love is skill, mm. uh, but the original is fucking dark as fuck. <laughs> when we were children, we would love in secret. Who were we nice to? Only uncles and aunts. Mm. And the poor girls suffered. Those sweethearts, they'd just get beaten up. And what we really felt, we whispered in the bet language. Uh, because a Barney B is essentially I love you in the Hebrew version of Pig Latin. Right, right. And not I want to be a polar bear, as some people mm, thought it mm. was. Christ, that is bleak. <laughs> yes. It might as well have ended with the line, you know, at least this winter we eat. Or, yes. or something like that. <laughs> Jesus. Although it is really yeah. fucking catchy. Um, it's yeah. catchy yes. without being nursery rhymish, which is a good trick for a Eurovision song. And yes. the lead singer, I mean, he's just a magnificent stallion of a man with a, with a magnificent he is, he? mane. He's really captivating. Yeah. Taylor, here's another addition to your band, Chirpy Human Cerberus, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he is a bit. Yeah, it's ours here. It's a 
It's a Uber Keegan. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it is. I wish I'd known about all these Eurovision shenanigans, though, because Eurovision just was not a thing for me. Oh, it was for me. In 78. I, think, I, I think Eurovision becomes a thing for me much later with Books Fizz. And I, I mean, yes. I, I was aware with, of Brotherhood of Man, but only really yeah. via Top of the Pops and the Chart. But Books Fizz, yeah, that was the first Eurovision I, I remember watching where I, you know, I wanted the UK to win and I was really glad that they did. Yeah. Um, Eurovision before that, at this period, yeah. I, maybe it was just on too late. Yeah, that's the thing for me because Eurovision was really important in my life because it was one of the few Saturday nights where I was allowed to stay up until almost 11 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. Midnight Central European time. <laughs> All right, look, I've got to be honest, I, I, I did my bit. I went and watched the 1978 Eurovision Song Contest well done, yes! from yes! Paris with Serge Gainsbourg in the audience. Wow. Although, you know, yes. he always looked half asleep anyway. Um, and it is a strange affair. Did he say, I want to fuck Angela Ripper? <laughs> but, yeah, I want to fuck uh, Leon Zitron, the uh, presenter of this, who yes. speaks perfect English with a Swedish accent, even though he's French. It, I, wow. I, yeah. <laughs> but it's, look, the, it was a strange affair all round. Like, late 70s France is a funny place anyway. Like, a lot of tired-looking yeah. men in flared suits smoking fags in the rain. It's, everyone's a bit too used <laughs> to the taste of five-quid wine uh, and has no energy left to <laughs> philosophize. They just, you know, you just wear a... Wear a cream Macintosh while raising one eyebrow with your mouth <laughs> hanging open. Then make yet another film about a bourgeois housewife who becomes a prostitute and likes it. How many of those films are they going to make? But it's look, it's all on YouTube in English. So you get the benefit of yes. Wogan mm. and his, uh, his twinkly Irish wit. Like the introductory film, they've got some scenes of Paris in it. And when Notre Dame comes on, mm. he says, the bells, the bells. <laughs> Good one, Terry. Uh, oh, Terry. Then they show a, a shot of the moon, and he says, it may well be a French moon, but I'm not taking any chances. <laughs> By gum, it is. What? See, that's how you earn the big bucks. It, he's not bitter Wogan here, is there? No, he's... By this point. He's just... Mm. You know, later on in his Eurovision career, he'd, he'd start off all twinkly, then as soon as the votes came in and it was obvious we weren't <laughs> going to win again, he'd get really bitter. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's like, Terre, you're Irish. Yeah, precisely. No, he's... On this one, he's just enjoying Duvang, and uh, yeah, he's pretty chilled. I don't think he's really that bothered at, no. It's like he, it's like he was trained into being bothered by this, <laughs> and at this point he's just no, he's just, he's on a jolly, you know, and it's pretty much what you'd expect from 1978. All the male singers are in bell bottoms, like flares at the bottom, mm. but so <laughs> tight at the top they're all bunched up around their doubtless bright red briefs, you know, <laughs> empty seats in the theatre with all the house lights way up high. It's because it's still in that period. This is the thing. The the golden age of Eurovision for us was that early 80s yeah. period where it, it became like an entertainment occasion. Like it was presented like a proper TV show. Whereas here, mm. it's still in that period where it was treated almost like a formal mm. occasion. Mm. Um, yes. With this sort of strange self-assumed importance, like the Rotary Club or something, <laughs> you know. Like rather than what it really, like a, a jeu sans frontiere that thinks it's summit. But look, I, 
I took a brief note for each entry, if anyone's interested. Oh, so oh, to oh. save save everyone the, the pain of watching it, I'll, I'll give you a summary. In order of appearance, Ireland, balding, bearded, Dublin cowboy with mad staring eyes and legs akimbo. Norway, new wave trousers, very, very old wave, everything else. Italy, ragazzi e ragazze. That's Italian for guys and dolls. <laughs> Finland... Strange woman, half Nina Mishkoff, half B. Smith. Uh, Portugal, Gemini, a singing group led by a Scotsman who looks a little out of place. Meninos e meninas. That's Portuguese for guys and dolls. France, <laughs> uh, a greasy chanteur, Kelsa Priest, but too young to be convincing. And you know what they say, never send a boy to do a man's job. No. They'll only steal his bike. Um, <laughs> Spain... Gleaming white suit, gleaming white teeth like Jurgen Klopp, but it's the 70s, so they look uncomfortable. Um, should have been disqualified for not entering lost punk rockers. Yes. United Kingdom. Yeah, Coco, mm-hmm. described by Wogan as an attractive, eye-catching group, uh, including Cheryl Baker and some clowns in stamped-on paint box outfits, uh, and it's a Stephanie de Sykes composition. Yeah. Uh, jaw-droppingly obvious rewrite of those were the days yeah. yes yeah. Uh, Switzerland just no fun like a night out in Zurich uh, <laughs> sung by somebody's wife out of the Sweeney uh, Belgium <laughs> piano ballad from a smoothie who is like the mm. bloke of about 50 in a soap who's the local playboy uh, <laughs> Netherlands conducted by Harry Von Hoof uh, unexpected permed lady teacher in a world book day Aladdin outfit flanked by Two boys' town dancers Ooh. who look suspiciously and unconvincingly butch. <laughs> like it's a small country, maybe they couldn't find any gay men. Um, <laughs> Turkey, dressed as a wrongly assembled jigsaw puzzle. I keklir ve kislar. That's Turkish for guys and dolls. <laughs> Germany, disco schlager with electronic keyboard sounds, i.e. Mm. as Germany 1978, as you can fit into the Eurovision Song Ooh. Contest. Streamlined and, and, and sexless. Monaco, not going to comment on this one because it's not a real country. No. Greece, lady dressed as Charlie Chaplin, sings a song about Charlie Chaplin that goes, <laughs> Charlie Chaplin, Charlie Chaplin, but she looks like Lorraine Kelly. Denmark, multiple Rod Stewart stripper grounds singing something that's obviously meant to be funny, but it's in Danish, so it oh. dies a bit. Mm. Uh, Luxembourg, Baccarat, the actual Baccarat, yes. cheating, pathetic. Yeah. What a fucking disgrace. Luxembourg should have been banned from the contest. Mm. Sorry, sorry, you're a Spaniard. Yeah, yeah, fielding an ineligible player, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. ringers. And worse mm. than that, the song is a rewrite of, Ye- of Yes, Sir, I Can Do Lux Familiar. Um, Israel, this shit. Austria, the Grumbleweeds, if they weren't a comedy act. Sweden, mm. well, <laughs> Sweden think they're big shots now, right? <laughs> After oh. ABBA. As you say, this guy thinks he can buck the rules and... Oh, it's just, and he's just some idiot in a, uh, a. He's got feathered hair and an Osmond's outfit, doing a proper oh. song, and he looks looks away, looking thoughtful in the instrument. It's like David Soul, right? The only good thing about it is because it's in French, they're credited on sc- on screen as suede. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, in the the final reckoning, 
is brilliant. There's no frills at all. It's just a still shot of the scoreboard while unseen foreigners solemnly intone scores down muffled phone lines. It sounds like a numbers station for about an hour. And occasional shots of the artists sat around what looks like the all-night bar in an airport, you know, like (laughs) usual. But there's something noble and beautifully simple about it. And it made me think this is what they should do with Europe generally. Basically, everyone votes. And at the end, whichever country wins takes over the whole of Europe (laughs) for for a year. Yes. it's better than a war, isn't it, right? That means we get Holland for two years. I'd, I'd settle for that at the minute. Yeah. Daffo. I think that anyone who bulks at this is an enemy of democracy, really. Mm. Let Andorra have its day. <laughs> yes. But anyway, th- this performance, they're all in white and gold with good to see straight leg trousers. Uh, Israel's on trend. Yeah. But what the fuck's going on with the set? It looks like they've got tape machines. You know, like how like Depeche yeah. Mode and stuff and Echo and the Bunny Men used to have like machinery on stage. Yeah, they're not like Edwardian one-armed bandits, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, and I love the lineup of Alpha Beta too. It's like there's just this overabundance of backing singers. Yeah. There's no need to have six people on stage. Mm. None of them playing an instrument or pretending to, Mm. they're just shuffling from side to side, clicking their fingers, singing along. Um, They're all singing, but they're so far down in the mix. It's like they're on the other side of a hill. You can't hear them. I do like the instrumental bit in this song, by the way, just because the backing dancers and singers, they do that thing of, um, oh, things are going a bit crazy. And they kind of juggle their heads about, like, oh, what's going (laughs) on? It's so catchy. Yeah. So yes. the following week, a Barney B nips up one place to number twenty. It's highest position. The follow-up, make a little love, failed to chart, and he never troubled the UK chart ever again. In 1985, though, he represented Israel again in Eurovision, where Ole Ole finished fifth, and he now runs his own jewelry shop in Tel Aviv. This one was a big hit for John Denver. In fact, it went to number one. It's called Annie's Song. It's a beautiful new instrumental version out by James Galloway, which I want to, you to hear right now. points out that he knew that song was going to win Eurovision, actually, before fucking up another intro when he introduces Annie's song by James Golloway. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good night for Tony. It isn't. And, and actually, when he comes out of that Alpha Beta song, I think he says, believe it or not, that won the Eurovision Song Contest or something like that. Yes. Basically implying, yeah. you know, who's, who's buying this foreign muck? 
Mm. <laughs> Born in Belfast in 1939, James Galway was the son of a flute player and shipyard worker father and a pianist and mill worker mother who took up his dad's instrument and joined a fife and drum corps at the age of nine. By the age of 11, he was a genuine prodigy, having won the Junior, Senior and Open Awards at the Belfast Flute Championships on the same day. And when he left school at the age of 14, he worked as an apprentice to a piano repairer. At 16, he studied the flute at the Royal College of Music, then at the Guildhall School of Music, and then finished his studies at the Paris Conservatoire. He would then spend the whole of the 60s and half of the 70s as an orchestral player with Sadler's Wells Opera, the London Symphony Orchestra and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And in 1969, he became the principal flute of the Berlin Philharmonic under Herbert von Karajan. However, in 1975, he went solo and signed to RCA. And this, the follow-up to Russian Love Song, which failed to chart in 1976, is of course a cover of the John Denver single, which got to number one for a week in October of 1974, in between Kung Fu Fighting the Ramadan number one in 1974, and Sad Sweet Dreamer by Sweet Sensation, which, like Denver, he recorded for his current wife, who had the same name. It's just entered the chart this week at number 51, and here's the man with the golden flute in his biggest assignment yet, leading (laughs) the Top of the Pops Orchestra. (laughs) Here they are, we finally get to see them again. Mm. All on the best behaviour, all togged out. Yeah. Cans of what yeah. is party for safely hidden away for a moment. Yeah, and they're co- they're completely yeah. competent. There's no yes. there's no seeming drunkenness here. I mean, given that on previous chart musics, I've admitted that I loved the floral dance. Mm. You might think I might like this. I was expecting it. Well, no, but it, I mean, even, we, we do get that same dazzling radiance from Galway's flute as we did from the Brighouse and Rational <laughs> Bands, yeah. you know, brass instruments. <laughs> but this isn't jaunty and it's not happy. And, and in 78, I would have hated yeah. this. For, I mean, for very similar reasons, actually, that I hated, as we previously mentioned, the Waltons and Little House on the Prairie. It's yes. too emotional. It's like, mm. it's, it's like I couldn't stand for the longest time the last scene in The Incredible Hulk because it was just too (laughs) sad. And this was a period where I remember, I mean, it's something my sister takes the piss at me massively for, but I remember watching a kind of old version of Hunchback of Notre Dame at this time in 78, and I was quite young. It was the Charles Lawton version. And at the end, when he throws himself off the tower, I think he says, why, before he jumps. And I was in-con-fucking-solable for like, you know, ages. I was sobbing. I couldn't get over it. And Annie's song, you know, it's too emotional. It's a loathsome song for me. I don't like it. Um, mm. how, how, what can I compare? You know, um, it, th- there's something about tunes that as a kid, they can be too emotional. Chi Mai, the Morricone tune, that's another mm. one that just traumatized yeah. me too much. Cause I remember when that yeah, came yeah. out, I remember like one of my, one of my favorite records in my youth was my favorite albums was, um, Jeff Love Orchestra plays great Western themes, right? Mm. Because the, the big country tune and Gunfight the OK Corral were massive phase. And I remember noticing Morricone's voice in the credits for it. And Chima just upset me too much. I was appalled mm. that he was knocking out this tearful stuff. So this, although it looks like I should like it because I like um, things like the floral dance. No, it just reminds me of sadness. And it reminds me of fucking recorder lessons as well. 
um, <laughs> at school, just 30 slobbery kids making a really shrill racket. Um, and Galway, actually, Galway's one of those artists that we were bought albums by. You know, we'd get a Galway album for Christmas from somebody trying to right. westernize us, I guess. <laughs> and, and, you know, this one, I mean, it was the one that was most unfathomable to me, the Galway album, because it was all just dreary, slow shit like this. And, you know, looking at this and listening to it, I, I just wonder, because th- there is this thing about James Galway that he's, you know, he's just this, this f- not this flute demon, but he's, you know, it, there's something special about him. But yeah. what's special about him? What What's special about the way he plays? Nothing. And I think that's yeah, probably yeah. like he sets fire to it or plays it with his teeth or his nose. If he'd played it with his nose, that would have impressed me. <laughs> but there's nothing special about his tone. It's just, I don't know, it's just clear. And I guess that's why he's huge. He, he provides music to people who don't want any of the flim-flam of pop. They just want a nice tune. Mm. Um, and it's, of course, the flim-flam that makes pop interesting. But uh, as a kid, yes. I would simply have been annoyed by this. About, I mean, for starters, it's not fast. So yeah. I just wouldn't have liked that. Yeah. I mean, Annie's song was a slight nick of a bit of Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony Second Movement. It says here on Wikipedia. <laughs> Citation needed. Yes. But that tune also provided the theme tune to the Paul Hogan show. So oh, yeah. A very, very valuable piece of work by Tchaikovsky there. Well done. <laughs> and of course, this is, this is one of his first public appearances since he was run over by a motorbike in Switzerland about <laughs> six months ago and broke his left arm and both legs. Really? Yes. Oh. He's looking well. Yeah, I think the same bloke who was after Jazz Coleman in Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> what a music lover. This this is horrible, isn't it? This is really horrible. This florid prick. He's like he's got John Denver trapped inside that flute. <laughs> feeding him on dried piss and pontifrac cakes. But I know from this distance, we watch the old Top of the Popsies and the more variety, the merrier. But I sort of have to stand up for the kids of the day and say this is a fucking disgrace. Mm. Um, And I don't like this song anyway, never have, Mm. because Mm. because why would I, you know, or anyone? (laughs) And on the rare occasions that I do hear it, I'm always confused that it doesn't open with the line, you came on my pillow, like in the Monty (laughs) Python version, which is not very funny. It's on their contractual obligation album, which is largely barrel scrapings. And they do this weak 10-second gag where it says, and now John Denver being strangled. And he goes, you came (laughs) on my pillow. But John Denver heard about this and complained and made them take it off the album. The complete no. fucking bell end. So fuck him. But this version is at least an improvement on the original, just by virtue of having removed half the song, mm. i.e., the lyrics. Yes. And that's the better half of the song to have removed. Because can you imagine if it was just him reading out the lyrics as a poem? <laughs> <laughs> Come, let me love you. Let me give my life to you. Let me drown in your laughter. Let me die in your arms. Fucking hell, man. Get a fucking back. As opposed to a plane. Yeah, yeah. Well, the only problem is that he couldn't have removed the music as well. 
and just sat there for three minutes in beautiful silence, just staring at his flute, <laughs> being pestered by a fly. It's a fucking chunky flute as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, yeah. he's well known for having a platinum flute from Japan that's worth 20 grand, <laughs> but this one, it's it's a beefy fucking flute, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he loves it. And, you know, I'm watching this, and yes, like you... My 10-year-old self would be nipping downstairs to have a look in the cupboard to see if, uh, <laughs> if United bars have been invented yet. Yeah. <laughs> but watching it now, I, I just started thinking, well, who would win a flute fight between James Galway and Ian Anderson? Oh, Because, you know, Anderson's got the obvious height advantage, but, you know, I think Galway's flute would do some serious damage. Yeah. Yeah, and behind, though, yeah, Galway... I would not fuck with Galway. The only person who could beat Galway would be Atara Bentoven, um, the Sunday mm. morning kids presenter. But this has a Darnerish thing to it as well. So it's, it's, yeah, get it off top of the pops. What a waste of time. I am picturing yeah. the choreography of this flute fight looking like uh, Luke Skywalker <laughs> versus Darth Vader. Right. holding the flutes upright like that. <laughs> he, he, he loves it so much because it doubles as a marital aid yeah. like if, he's, if he's too drunk to do his evil duty he gets out some rubber bands and uses it as a splint uh, it's like what Arthur Negus used to do Like he didn't want to miss out on the antiques roadshow Pussy Bonanza uh, but he was past a certain age in the days before Viagra so he'd strap it to mm. a Queen Anne candlestick. Yeah. Pewter. That's <laughs> so how he managed to father all those kids who went on to work with Ras Michael. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Someone let me out of lockdown. This isn't healthy. This isn't healthy. <laughs> the thing is with records like this, though, that, like, variety is the spice, don't get me wrong. Yes. But re- records like this, there's, there is an implied snottiness and snobbery about pop. Not only in the people who are buying it, but I, I do just think, yeah, this, you know, that the people who bought this, this is proper music. Mm. And Galway himself, you know, it, it, that I, I feel that there's a there's a snobbery and a snottiness to this. It's not music that will coexist with the rest of the pop, with the rest of pop music. It's music that gets in the charts and kind of looks around at what else is in the charts and just feels. Mm. This isn't really, you know, this isn't proper music. This is mm. proper music. And that includes the people who buy it. So a lot of instrumentals that get into the 70s charts are very much like that. For yeah. people who like, yeah, a proper tune simply played without any of the nonsense. Well, yeah. the nonsense is the nice stuff, you know. It's for people who grade music on how much it is like the still surface of a lake. You know, mm-hmm. like as soon as anything happens, that's just spoilt it. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? But as it is, like, however offensive this is to the ear, it's even more appalling to the eye. And there's no excuse, right? Because plenty of older, uglier people have been on top of the pops and mm. made it cool in one way or another. You know, yeah. the issue is not that he's, it's not just that he looks awful, it's that he's chosen to look like this, right? Because yes. I can forgive him the nervous confused look because he's probably not used to working with musicians of this caliber no um <laughs> but there's no excuse for thinking oh i've got to go on top of the pops so i'll turn up looking like an unkempt loner <laughs> well known to the local police like with a house you can't get into because it's crammed with like old free newspapers and bin bags <laughs> full of his own shit <laughs> it's not it's not appealing it's it's not so much Annie's song as Megan's Law. Uh, <laughs> he's got that look of the 1970s creep, 
like really mm. down mm. to a T. Do you know what I mean? It, like a teacher who's always sat on his own in the staff room, or the yeah. <laughs> or a sales manager at Sunshine Desserts with a shotgun buried in his garden. But it's <laughs> either way, it's not. It's that look of dark, tangled, shapeless beard over a velvet bow tie and an open velvet dinner jacket open to accommodate his protruding gut stretching <laughs> out the the white ruffled shirt and it's supposed to be classy but it just suggests a reek of mothballs and body odor and yep. something that he's dribbled into the beard and down the front of the shirt uh, caught yeah. in the ruffles it's it's too much Chateau Margot at the dinner dance, you know what I mean? Those party <laughs> hands and then still driving home despite being pissed. Full body hair, including ears and nose and <laughs> breath like a wheelie bin. It's fucking horrible. You want to get him off the screen and back into a dark wood banqueted hall with a suit of armour in the corner and cross swords mounted on the wall. And fly a fucking plane into it. He is the image of every slightly unpleasant man who ever stood too close to you when you were a kid. Yeah, 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 definitely. He's gross. That beard is is fucking foul. Yeah, and you just you don't want to see this guy eating anything. (laughs) No. No. Would you have a sandwich? Made by James Galway. Fuck no. No, (laughs) fuck no. I mean, the the thing is, I could make him a really nice sandwich. Mm. Like... I, and I'd have to run away before watching him eat it. Could you imagine? Oh, man. <laughs> He's got egg caught in that beard. He's fucking foul. I apologise to any woman listening to this called Annie because you must have had this song thrown at you right through your life. <laughs> oh, dear me. So the following week, Annie's song soared 24 places to number 27, eventually spending two weeks at number three in the first two weeks of July. The follow-up, Arioso, failed to chart and he never resurfaced in the singles chart again, but he went on to become a successful albums artist. He played with Pink Floyd at their 1990 performance of The Wall at Potsdamer Platz. (laughs) That was great. Won an Oscar for the soundtrack of the Lord of the Rings trilogy and released a 71 CD box set five years ago. 71 (laughs) CDs. Oh, and if I had the money, I know what two lads are getting for Christmas. James Galway there and Annie Song and Johnny Pearson and the Top of the Pops Orchestra looking absolutely immaculate tonight. Side change in tempo at number 29, this is Thin Lizzy. She's got the mediator, sweet elaborator you will never see. See you later, no one dare disobey you. Blackburn gives a shout-out to Johnny Pearson and the T.O.T.P.O. before taking us back to The Rock with Rosalie by Thin Lizzy. Formed in Dublin in 1969 when Phil Linnett and Brian Downey left the band Orphanage to team up with Eric Bell and Eric Rixton, who was an original member of them, Thin Lizzy named themselves after a comic strip about a robot girl which appeared in the Dandare in the 50s. 
They were almost immediately signed to EMI for the one-shot single The Farmer, which only sold 283 copies, but they were picked up by Decca at the end of 1978 and relocated to London, where they recorded their self-titled debut LP, which also sold poorly, despite regular airplay from John Peel on Radio 1 and Kid Jensen on Radio Luxembourg. After dropping to a three-piece and marking time by teaming up with members from the band Elmer Fudd to record an LP of Deep Purple covers, they supported Slade and Susie Quattro on their UK tours, only to discover that Decker had released their cover of the 17th century folk song Whiskey in the Jar as a single behind their back. But after it got to number one in Ireland, it went all the way to number six in the UK in February of 1973, giving them their first Top of the Pops appearance. However, the year ended badly when Bell walked out of the band due to health issues and being fucked off with the music biz, and he was briefly replaced by Gary Moore, who left a few months later, and by the time their deal with Decca was up, they were reduced to a two-piece. After picking up two guitarists, Brian Robinson and Scott Gorham, and signing a new deal with Phonogram, they continued their run of six flop singles after Whiskey in the Jar, but in March of 1976 they put out their sixth LP, Jailbreak, and the lead-off single from it, The Boys Are Back in Town, went all the way to number six in July of that year. This single, billed as Rosalie slash Cowgirl song, is the lead cut from their next LP which comes out next week, Live and Dangerous. It's a version of their 1975 single which fell to chart and was recorded at Hammersmith Odeon last year. It's also a cover of the 1972 Bob Seger track that was a whinge about Rosalie Trombley, the music director of the Ontario radio station OKLW, who wasn't playing Seger's records at the time. But Lizzie have turned it into a song about a woman that Phil Lynott wants to cop off with. <laughs> it entered the charts at number 45 a fortnight ago. A top of the pops appearance got it up to number 40. And this week it soared 11 places to number 29. And here's a repeat of their performance from two weeks thence. This confused the fuck out of me because it, it, it's a performance of a live single, but, but it's different to the version they released three years ago with the cowgirl song bit at the end. But this is the version I fucking want because the riff on that is mint. Yeah. <laughs> and as far as I know, their recording for Top of the Pops is the only version of it available unless, of course, you know better. Mm. The, I mean, the, the recorded version, when they don't do it live and they do it in the studio, is, is a tight-as-fuck kind of stonesy thing. But mm. this is, I mean, it's rawer. It's better. And Phil yeah. barely has the breath to do it. But God, after Galway, fuck me. I, I yes. practically, you know, stood up and cheered when this came on. Um, what a band Lizzie were. I fucking mm. love Thin Lizzie. My daughter's got me heavily back into Thin Lizzie in recent months. She has a, Good girl. She has a lovely way of not caring about, like, she doesn't care about albums or discographies much. She's brilliant at finding those ace five quid triple CD comps in supermarkets. Ooh. And she found one... Um, of Thin Lizzy, which is perfect because you basically get 40 odd songs without having to trawl through the discography. And mm. Lizzie just so wonderful. They were always around when I was a kid, just by dint, I mean, of being popular, being Irish as well, had a big 
part of it um, in Coventry as well. But I think at that age, I don't think I would have appreciated what a great songwriter Phil Linnett truly is. And, yes. and, and you know, that they remind me in a sense of Zeppelin in that their rhythm section is key and it's the one part of Lizzie that never changes. It's always Brian Downey and Phil. And, and yeah. you know, he's one of the most under, underrated drummers ever, I'd say, Brian Downey. So, so they've just got this solidity of sound. Um, because they get bored of just doing rock music, Finn Lizzie are always slipping away from it to a certain extent. They've got these mad songs like Mexican Girl and Randolph's Tango that is always like really, mm. really convincing. Um, you know, when Phil does Irish stuff, he does it really convincingly, yeah. you know, unlike anyone else, mm. things like Black Rose, I love. And he has that, he has this manix type thing of overstuffing lines with lyrics but he always does it so so brilliantly his bass playing is always infectiously funky the dry studio sound of rock in the 70s there's barely anyone better doing it than thin lizzie i think i i think they've suffered a little bit by being characterized by the big hits in a sense like jailbreak and whiskey and you know um dancing the moonlight and things like that but there's so much more of them and already for me instantly they are the best thing on this show by far so far yeah um you know so so i've loved thin lizzie and this performance after galway in particular it, it's just glorious. Um, Phil in its imagination with his, with his writing, with his songs. I, I actually think, think as well that as we're pushing towards the eighties, I know this is 78, but that whole period from here actually until the early eighties with things like waiting for an alibi and Chinatown and killer on the loose and trouble boys and Hollywood, Lizzie go into the eighties really strong, really, really strong. Yes. And then they, they, you know, they vaunt that period really, really well. And of course, at the time, I mean, I don't know whether this was like a nationwide thing, but it just seemed like in my life, everyone's mum fancied Phil Linnett. Yes. the fuck out of Thin Li- uh, yeah. Phil Linnett, you know? I mean, and understandably, he's incredibly good looking and he looks so damn good in this this performance. Yes, he does. You know? Yeah. Uh, just a white shirt, black leather or PVC trousers, yeah. straight And leg. that massive, thick guitar strap with all the studs on it. He looks fucking mm. awesome. Uh, beyond that, I mean, it's just the best bit of the show so far because I really love the audience in this bit. It's like a proper rock gig. There's not kids yes. being common deared around and they've got the space at the front to dance and all the girls look like Janine yes. St Hubbins basically and, <laughs> yes. you know, um, and all the blokes kind of look like Artie Fufkin I, 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 this is a real <laughs> this is a real highlight um, for me um, yes. of the episode yeah. so far fucking love Thin Lizzy yeah yeah I mean yeah the, we do see the kids getting down but the, again there's that big gap at the front mm. And center that's dominated by the cameraman, which kind of to me made it look like the kids couldn't be asked, and they're they're all hanging over on the other end of the studio waiting for the next. Yeah, act. perhaps. But I mean, what blazing stuff is coming off that stage? And you're right; it is difficult telling what's live, what's not. Phil's vocals mm. definitely live because um, yeah, he seems yeah. like really out of breath, and perhaps the guitar sound is too strong for it to be live because it's. It's but it, but you know as a replacement for what we've just had, we've just had a beardy cunt um, playing this horrible, soft, sappy shit music to this. Uh, yeah, I genuinely did get up out of my chair and just go fucking yes, yes. Um, which is you know what you do. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I I don't disagree with a single word of what Neil just said. Mm. The two things that I love the most about Thin Lizzy, firstly, they do that thing that's so difficult which only a few rock groups ever managed of 
speaking for people who don't have that much to say. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, like the who did it, but in a different way. It's like you've got an audience of mostly young lads who didn't really know how they felt or how to express it. Uh, until their favourite band sort of sang it back at them. And they didn't do it with social comment or tortured young man stuff, which mm. is the usual way. No. They just did it with songs about life and love and lust and frustrations without a trace of the self-appointed spokesman bit, you know. Mm. Mm. It's just mm. stuff that people could relate to. And all the better that these mostly white lads could suddenly relate to a black Irish guy yeah. more easily yeah. than they could relate to their own families. You know, that can only have done good. <laughs> I think the reason why everybody's mum fancied him, he had that combination. He was like a tall black guy, but he had that Irish twinkliness about yeah, him as yeah. well. Yes, I think yeah. that combination was lethal for a lot of people and particularly mm. a lot of mums for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. And the other thing I love about them is the way that they played and that it was really hard rock but with this balletic lightness of touch mm-hmm. um yes like it's like 50 ton titanium robots like skipping and somersaulting <laughs> there's that little trip you get in the backbeat and just the neatness of everything even through a, yes. a haze of booze and god knows what it's almost like a feminine touch and it, it stops these records which are to some extent, celebrations of masculinity sounding boorish or mm. or lumpen, you know. They're yes, very yes. dainty in their way, which makes no sense, but it's precisely what makes them so great. Um, I mean, mm. their relationship with their own machismo was quite interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like you had Scott Gorham, who looks like Rapunzel with a Les Paul. And <laughs> yes. Who, who to me was the most American-looking person I'd ever yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah. And then you get, like, the cover of the album Fighting, which is one of my oh, favourite yeah. album titles <laughs> ever, where it's just a picture of them in an alley trying to look hard, holding bits of lead piping, <laughs> and the word fighting over and over again down the sides. But this is their appeal, that they were they were sort of laddish and leering uh. and leery, uh, but, it, you know, it was humorous enough with a light enough touch Definitely. to be really charming. I mean, and, just uh, sorry, just to, just to interject, yeah, I mean, with that light touch, because, I mean, when I think about, fight, you know, finding my way back on that album, the way Phil goes, fighting, <laughs> it's like, it is humorous. You're not getting yeah. an attitude. They're not copying an attitude. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Really lovely and fluid. Neil, can you do the early and the late albums? I only do the five middle albums, really. I've only got the five middle albums from Fighting to Black Rose. No, the the early ones I don't bother with. The late ones I need to bother with, I I, I suspect, because yeah. I've not got around to them. But the five middle ones are, are sweet as. But I mean, the thing is, you know what you're saying about macho-ness? All you need to do to kind of realise how special it was, what, what Lizzie did, is listen to any cover of them. Because when I think of like Metallica's cover of Whiskey in the Jar <laughs> is one of the most appalling things you will ever hear in your life. And Hetfield just doesn't get it, obviously, because he's a fucking thick bastard. Yeah. But he, he just does not get it, you know? And and if you try and play Lizzie songs in that balls-to-the-wall, metally way, no, you're not getting it. There's a fluidity, yeah. there's a rippling-ness to their music yes. yeah, that yeah. I think virtually everyone who's ever copied them never gets. Yeah. Yes. And also, the 
it's that charm, that twinkly charm that lets them get away with so much because they were like the poet's laureate of it was acceptable in the 70s. There's such a warm, benevolent feel comes off Thin Lizzy in a weird way, however loud and brutal they could be. Um, Well, of course, you know, you look at their their output and it's loaded with really dubious stuff um <laughs> things which have since fallen mm. foul mm. of shifting <laughs> conceptions of where the safety cordon should go you know around mm. sleaze uh, a concept which would have meant nothing to thin lizzie because th- this that was what it was to them like they the whole point was they were sleazy and naughty you know that was mm. that was the thing that they did uh but they get away with it because I don't think a well-balanced person could actually object to any of it. It's just, mm. there's just a lot which makes you go, um, you know what I mean? But it's <laughs> it's so deeply set into their modus operandi and their sense of purpose in a way that it's just, there's always a bit of a wink behind it. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, yeah, but putting out Killer on the Loose <laughs> while the, the Yorkshire Ring yeah, is still about, yeah. a, a bit much. Yeah, they weren't living in the real world. But a lot much. They weren't living in the real world. Yeah, and more often than not, <laughs> Phil uses his songs. I mean, he puts characters in his songs. They're stories, a lot of his little songs. Um, something was beyond a lot of the heavy rock brigade at that time. You know, in a few years' time, this type of music is going to be colonised by a different type of band. But the fluidity and the gorgeousness of, of Lizzie's music, yeah, it's kind of it yeah. kind of gets lost soon. But even yeah. in the 80s, even with big gated drums and 80s effects, it's the strength of... I mean, I, I can't believe I'm saying this because I used to not give a fuck about songwriting. But obviously it's important. And Phil's songwriting, he's, he's a fucking genius. He, he's majorly underrated. And I think him and Brian Downey, it's, it's one of the greatest rhythm sections ever. Um, those, those old Lizzie records need listening to again. I think they've been forgotten about to a certain extent in terms of they've been turned into those three or four big hits and people don't dig into them enough. Um, they, yeah, they're yeah. ripe for rediscovery, Lizzie, I think. Yeah, that, it's that subtlety to it. I mean, you wouldn't piss in a bottle and hurl it at Thin Lizzy. It doesn't, <laughs> no, you're not no. inspired to do that by this music. No. And yeah, this performance is fucking great. Like, they don't yes. do a lot. They just communicate that combination of charm and menace yeah. really well. And also that shiny, reflective scratch plate on Phil's bass, creating absolute havoc <laughs> under the studio lights, like flashing and flaring every time he holds it at a certain angle. It's like he's playing a lighthouse. <laughs> and also, what's stuck in the headstock of his bass? Is it a fag? You yeah, know, people used to put a fag... That. <laughs> like it's not lit if it is but you know people used to put a lit fag in the headstock yeah, yeah. of their guitar yeah. or bass which i've never understood because a fag burns down in the time it yes. takes to play at least the time it took mm. to play a song in the 70s right especially yeah. if you've got a wind machine on stage Look, there's a clip of pink floyd playing dark side of the moon and roger waters has got a fag burning away on his headstock which is Surely the height of stupidity when you're playing a 40-minute song cycle. And it's like, just as it begins, I'll just like have one drag on it and just put it in there. That'd be all right. They do roll-ups. They tamp themselves out, don't they? That's true. That's true. Yeah. It doesn't look yeah. like a roll-up, though. It looks perfectly cylindrical. Fucking idiot pop star. So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 
Hmm. I don't know. It's also, we need to find out what the actual track... I couldn't... I tried. I tried, did my research. I couldn't find out what we're actually listening to here. There is famously some debate over quite how live Life and Dangerous really is. Yeah, now, yeah. I'm slightly cynical. So, to me, it's about as authentically live as that Seeds album with the overdubbed screaming girls <laughs> on it, if you've ever heard that. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking, could this be the track without the vocals and without the audience from Live at Dangerous. I haven't heard that album for about a year, so I can't remember. I don't think it is. I think they've done it especially for Top of the Pops. Yeah. In which case, whoever oversaw that session has done a very good job of capturing that very dry, powerful sound. Because mm-hmm. it just sounds like Thin Lizzy, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like a Peel session or something. It sounds like Thin Lizzy. <laughs> yeah, he's a Phil, he's another West Bromwich birth, you know. Is there? Yeah, people always talk about uh, living in Ireland and about his heritage. Born in West Bromwich. It's him, me, Robert Plant, Denise Lewis, uh, Colin Jeevans, <laughs> uh, Brian Walden, and Madeline Carroll out of the 39 steps. Brian Walden. So the following week, Rosalie dropped nine places to number 38, then soared 17 places to number 21, then dropped 11 places to number 32, then soared 12 places to number 20, its highest position. Why? Fuck knows. All I know <laughs> is that the British Market Research Bureau had expanded the official chart from a top 50 to a top 75 in this month. And they abolished their system of excluding records that had dropped into the 41 to 50 slots in order to get some more new stuff in. But I don't know. It does make sense. There's one or two singles in this Top of the Pops that just bounce. Mm. Like that Matchbox thing with the um, ball bearings on the skins. That I always wanted but never got. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I do. do now. That was fucking brilliant. I mean, I do know that the, the Daily Mirror uh, launched an investigation against A&M Records about chart rigging. Elkie Brooks and um, Peter Frampton, they got their stuff hyped up. So the British Market Research Bureau had a, had a bit of a fiddle with the way they did things, and I don't know if it took a month or so to smooth everything out. But, yeah, records bouncing up and down uh, all over the show. Elky Brooks and all our tampered books. Yes! <laughs> Just roll me over Hey, I'll turn around And I'll move my fingers Up and down I'm Mark Haynes, and for the last 32 years, I've been a fan of professional wrestling. My friend Pete Donaldson from the Football Ramble, he hasn't. But in our podcast, Wrestle Me, the two of us subject the greatest spectacle in sports entertainment, WrestleMania, to the kind of rigorous scrutiny that ruins it entirely. GQ called Wrestle Me enrapturing. Shortlist said it's beautiful. And it's a hit with common people, too, with well over 400 five-star reviews on iTunes. Wrestle Me, available from all good podcast providers. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There it is. That's the number 29 sound here on Top of the Pops. The sound of Thin Lizzy and Rosalie. The Bee Gees writing some fantastic records at the moment, aren't they? And from the film Saturday Night Fever, here's Tavares and More Than a Woman, number seven this week. Blackburn, still socially distancing from the kids, wangs on about the songwriting ability of the Bee Gees as he introduces More Than a Woman by Tavares. Spawned by Mr. and Mrs. Tavares in Massachusetts and Rhode Island in the 1940s, the Tavares brothers began their career in 1959 as Chubby and the Turnpikes, <laughs> before changing their name to Tavares in 1973 and immediately making dents upon the American charts, including their cover of She's Gone by Hall & Oates, which got to number one in the R&B charts in 1974, and It Only Takes a Minute Girl getting to number 10 on the Billboard chart in 1970. A year later, they made their first raid on the UK charts when Heaven Must Be Missing an Angel got to number four in August of 1976, kicking off a run of five top 40 hits and two top tenors with Don't Take Away the Music and Who Done It. This is the follow-up to The Ghost of Love and is their contribution to the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever a cover of the Bee Gees track, which also features on the original soundtrack. And this week, it's moved up six places from number 13 to number seven. And here's a video. And quite an impressive video by 1978 standards, isn't it? Loads of split angles and whatnot. Mm. You know, we see various members of the band in different corners of the screen. And then, you know, the the, the woman comes out and she demonstrates that, yes, she is more than a woman because there's (laughs) five of her. Yeah, and the band in bizarre outfits and they're not the first mm. soul band we've seen wearing them either these things they're like crimping no. dungarees or overalls it's yes. like an all-in-one <laughs> trousers and midriff cover it's like a pair of trousers that comes up to the tits you know just flat across the stomach yes. like a breastplate <laughs> uh, it just yeah it just stops just <laughs> at the point where you can show off your wing collared shirt and chunky tie and they really are abominable. There's no buttons or zips or anything. It's just like an animal suit, like a no. like a stiff onesie. <laughs> it's not even flattering to yes. tall, well-built black men, which is really the test of bad tailoring. No. And I think it's the same outfits that we saw. Was it the stylistics wearing in the 
the chart rundown. It was just a picture of them on the chart rundown. Except, yes. as if it wasn't bad enough, theirs were yellow. Like banana yellow. <laughs> like Maplin's surplus. <laughs> it was like it was yes. uh, the Web Twins, Chris Andrews, and the Stylistics. <laughs> this, of course, was used in the rocky bit of Saturday Night Fever, wasn't it? Where Tony and Stephanie are working out the moves in the dance studio that was owned by the middle-aged pervert. Yeah. And, you know, it's got to be said that the Tavares version, once again, pisses all over the Bee Gees version. Do you think so? That they dance to at the end. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's better. It's I think different. It is. Nothing, I mean, nothing at this time can be as perfect as a Bee Gees record. They're perfecting pop in a way that no one bar sort of Maroda or Abba are doing at the moment. What saves this from being uh, a, not an inf- well, a knockoff or an inferior knockoff is the fact it's Tavares, who have amazing voices, mm. who can actually bring something, you know, which sort of all Bee Gees songs need in a sense, something non-creepy. Mm. to it to a good song the Bee Gees always had something creepy about them yeah but it's it's different quality of voices I'm I, I dispute that it's kind of better than the Bee Gees version though. well I think it was a schoolboy error by John Travolta to pick the Bee Gees version to dance to in the competition instead of this <laughs> and and no wonder Hector and his missus won a moral victory by doing <laughs> KG and Travolta was absolutely right to give him that big cup and the $500 he knew and, and if Travolta knew, then I know as well. Yeah, he didn't have to make such a show of it, though, did he? But, yeah, no, but, no I think no. I slightly prefer the Bee Gees version just because, well, on If I Can't Have You, the more human approach brings more out of the song. Whereas on this one, mm. I think it suits that, that sort of ghostly gliding, that, that relative lack of flesh and blood in the Bee Gees version. Mm suits the the creepy mm. heavenly creepy feel of the song perhaps it comes down to the fact that the the opening lines of this song are so ed stupot stewart tastic that i'd rather hear <laughs> them drifting in from a from a floating cloud than sung by a recognisable <laughs> human being. I mean again like the real thing before Tavares are a soul group who've who've gone disco but it's been a smoother transition for Tavares hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, what a run as well. It has to be said, what Tavares are on. Yeah. From 76 onwards. Amazing run of singles. But yeah, mm. they seem to suit it better. It's the voices with disco that don't problematise it as such, but might make it sound like more of a soul or a funk thing. Because, mm. I don't know, they're, they're not heavily textured voices as such. And they're not overly processed voices. There's a soulness to the vocals, if you like, that could be from 1975. But yeah. the undertow of it is, is definitely disco. It's definitely Saturday Night Fever. Uh, the film's been out for just over two months in the UK and is still packing them in. Uh, it's currently running alongside The Goodbye Girl, High Plains Drifter, The Wages of Fear, The Last Dinosaur, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, Confessions of a Lusty Housewife, <laughs> Camp on Blood Island, Plague of the Zombies, The New One-Armed Swordsman, and The Porn Brokers, of course, spelt P-O-R-N. Yeah, that's a good film. One Old Swordsman's a blinding film. Oh yeah, it's a fucking great film. One but I mean, this is this is the love theme from Saturday Night Fever, like the unconsummated yes. love theme. And I think that those forced lingering gazes and embraces uh, slightly undermine the song in a way, because mm. if you're just listening to it, like the simplicity uh, and let's face it, the banality of the lyrics doesn't matter. 
Um, mm. Whereas when when it's an accompaniment to a, a very soft focus close up of two faces gazing into each other's eyes, it becomes a bit too annoying. Or spinning <laughs> each other around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no patience with any of that. No. <laughs> I mean, Saturday Night Fever was a fucking weird vehicle to put John Travolta in, since they were trying to angle him as the, the latest heartthrob. It's, it's like they're saying, hey, girls, come and see John Travolta be racist and violent. He's ever sedition. <laughs> oh, and, and you can't see it if you're under 18 because he tries to rape his love interest in a car and get mm. kicked in the bollocks. It was a real shock to me when I first watched Saturday Night Fever. It's such a bleak film. Yes. Um, in, in lots and lots of ways. You know, and, and the, the dance sequences obviously then take on this kind of radiant hope that the mm. rest of the film doesn't have. Mm. And I, I didn't know, of course, at the time that, you know, Nick Conn, one of my favourite writers, is what this is based on, one of yes. his articles. But, but um, the bleakness of it is still quite startling to this day because yes. we all associate Saturday Night Fever with two things, the film and the look of John Travolta, yeah. but also, of course, that soundtrack LP. The soundtrack LP reveals none of the bleakness in no. a sense, like from the front of it, all the, the participation of the Bee Gees in it. But the film, when you watch it, God, you, come, you don't come away from it dancing, you come away from it quite depressed. Yes. It's quite a depressing, bleak film, Saturday Night Fever. And I really do like it. I think it's a really good film mm. with a fantastic soundtrack, but it's, it's good because of its bleakness. I think if I'd have seen it at the time, it would have been really, really startling to me. Yeah, yeah, you're right, because when I was that age and there were films going about that I obviously couldn't see because I was too young, I used to imagine what they'd be like. And I think mm. I've got Saturday mm. Night Fever is a film about a bloke who's really into disco and he goes to discos all the time yeah. and it's great and he, he does nothing yeah. else but go to discos. And then yeah. at the end, he gets into that pose and he just goes, disco, yeah! And that's the end of the film. <laughs> and that would have satisfied me deeply as a 10-year-old. Yeah, it's well, first of all, what's funny about Saturday Night Fever is, yeah, it's based on, on that, that uh, what's it called, the tribal rights of the new Saturday Night. Yeah, by Nick Cohn. And he knew nothing of disco or New York City. He just, he had to write about it and he just made it all up based oh, on yeah. his own experiences of the mod scene in London. Yeah, it's a, it's a mod film, yeah. isn't it? Saturday which Night is why it's basically a slightly, very slightly more downbeat quadrophenia. Um, mm. And yet this is the holy text of New York disco, this film and that piece yeah. of writing. For all we know, it could just be a pile of old mints, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's no it's it's a great film if just because there's so much fascinating stuff in it to gaze upon like it's old new york and old yeah. freedoms and old miseries and john travolta's yeah. peculiar relationship with heterosexuality um and it's mm. like a grand tribute to everything we can't do anymore like mm. being in big crowded rooms you know, the thrill of the yeah. crowd. I don't mean that we can't do any more because of the pandemic. I mean, just because we're old and fucked, you know. <laughs> but there's there's a few things in it that that great, like the fact that, yeah, everyone in the whole film is basically awful. Um, and I sort yes. of like films like that, but I'm never 100% sure how awful you're meant to think they are. Um, and also, how come this disco that they all go to is meant to be so cool when... DJ's only got one record and it's the soundtrack yes. to Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> so I want to say, it's not exactly deep cuts, is it, mate? No. <laughs> and also, in the mod world that, that Nick Cohn understood, dancing had a different function 
psychologically. The point is you would disappear into the crowd and you'd either reach a kind of collective nirvana, like uh, Acid House style, or you could stand out within the crowd in a sort of a weird kind of way. But the crowd was the thing. Whereas Mm. a lot of Saturday Night Fever is about, or it's focused on this like narcissistic individual display of what dancing Mm. had become, like these dance competitions, which you have to train for like an athlete. Mm. And that, that scene where, Tony clears the floor so that everyone has to watch him, takes over the dance. Floor. This yeah, is right. the this is the scene that makes me hate him, like more than all the more obviously <laughs> terrible stuff he does. Fran Drescher comes up to him, right? Fran Drescher, who I've always massively fancied, anyway, comes mm-hmm. up to chat him up and says, hey, are you as good in bed as you are on the dance floor? And they go off to dance, and she's like really slutty and great, and but because she's not as good at dancing as he is, mm. he's like, oh, fuck this. And he just ignores yeah. her and just dances on his own and clears the whole floor. So everyone else has to watch this dance onanism. Mm. And he's like doing Cossack shit. And yeah. <laughs> fucking idiot. It's supposed to be an expression of his, I don't know, his existential confusion or something. I don't know. It's where I come from, they call it being a dick. Yeah. It's an odd film to become such an international smash. And, but mm. but it's I think it's the film from '78 that ha- exerts a bigger future influence than other big cultural behemoths of that year. Because I mean, we'll come on obviously to talk about another massive film from the states this year that is a musical. But when you think of musicals after this year, there aren't any really. There are mm. none until like much later, much much later. Whereas yeah. what Saturday Night Fever is, I guess you could call it a dancical. It's like, you know, you know what I mean? It's dances soundtrack by music, but what you're watching is the dancing. You're not watching the singers singing it. Mm. Um, but but the music, you know, is, is part of the narrative thread of the movie. And it's a dancical. And those films kept going. There, there was still plenty of those. Oh, God, so, throughout the 80s. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, so I, I guess it exerted a much bigger influence than the other big American film of the year. But, but mm. it's still startling just what a nasty piece of work it is in a way. Yeah. And, of course, this is the film that codified disco, especially in the UK. You know, if you want to go to disco, you've got to look like this, and your disco's supposed to have this kind of floor, Mm. and this is the music you play. Yeah. 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 And this is the suit that Tony Blackburn wears. This is why the Pink Panther does those moves at the end of the cartoon. Mm. Um, Because (laughs) this film, they're all in here. So the following week, More Than a Woman dropped one place to number eight, and then nipped back up to number seven the next week its highest position. The follow-up, Slow Train to Paradise, would only get to number 62, and they'd have to wait eight years for their next sniff of the charty arse, when a remix of Heaven Must Be Missing an Angel by Ben Liebrandt got to number 12 in March of 1986. That's the number seven sound there from Tavares. It's called More Than a Woman. I think that's going to be my favourite along with Yvonne Elliman this week. Right now, Never Say Die. That's the brand new one from Black Sabbath.
Tony, still malingering at the back of the studio, tells us that that song and Yvonne Elliman's are his favourite tunes in this episode, virtually implying that we might as well switch off right now. (laughs) He then throws us at a band that presumably get very little time on his turntable at home, Black Sabbath with Never Say Die. Formed in Birmingham in 1968, the Polka Tuck Blues Band immediately changed their name to Earth, but when they found out another band was already using that name, they scrabbled around for a new one. According to legend, they chanced upon their new name when the cinema across the road from their rehearsal studio started to advertise their next film, the 1963 Boris Karloff horror movie Black Sabbath. They wrote a song with that title, made it dead scary, and adopted it as their new band name. Just as well, Carry On Up the Kyber wasn't playing at the time, <laughs> something like that. They signed to Philips Records at the end of 1969 and put out their debut single, a cover of Evil Woman by Crow, which failed to chart. But their debut LP, Black Sabbath, got to number eight in the UK in May of 1970, and the immediate follow-up, Paranoid, got to number one in the LP charts in October of that year. And the title track was released as a single, getting them to number four in the same month. This single... The follow-up to Am I Going Insane, which was released in February of 1976 and failed to chart, and the title track of their next LP is only the sixth single released by Sabbath in the UK. It came out last Friday and isn't in the charts yet, but as they're currently touring the UK, here they are, making only their second appearance on Top of the Pops. Before we turn our attention to Sabbath, why is Tony being kept apart from the kids? Hmm... Do you think the BBC are worried that he's taking his Travolta persona a bit too far and he's going to get girls up on stage and ask them, are you a nice girl or are you a cunt? (laughs) It is weird, that. It's very noticeable. Mm. Very noticeable that there's no grinning girls or grinning boys next to him at any point. Very strange. (laughs) But anyway, this song... um, it's just as well that Thin Lizzy are in the studio this week as uh, I think their ears would be burning at the intro of this song. It, it does remind me very much of Boys Are Back in Town, don't you think? A little bit, but but I mean, you know, at this point, Thin Lizzy are together and solid. And at this point, Sabbath had just fallen apart by yeah. this point. Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask you, Neil, uh, where are Black Sabbath in May of 1978, apart from standing over the prone Alan Jones and saying, leave it, Tony, he's not worth it? <laughs> <laughs> the Sabbath are, I mean, they're about to kind of disappear for four years. They're, I mean, Ozzy's already quit the band, but then been sort of rejoined in a sense. They're falling apart. Mm. Too much drugs, too much alcohol. And to be honest with you, with Sabbath, after the first two albums... Drugs just exert such a colossally bad influence on the band in terms of their personal relationships that they're just massively, massively dysfunctional by this point. Um, you know, and, and but despite all this, they could occasionally still be just fucking awesome as, as this track shows. I mean, yes. I love it. I actually love this. This kind of period of Sabbath with the Technical Ecstasy album that preceded Never Say Die and this Never Say Die album, they're often kind of... Um, you know, the, the the kind of biblical thing to say is, yeah, you know, you need the first three Stooges albums, you need the first seven Led Zepp records, and you need the first um, sort of six Sabbath albums. And I would still go along with that up to Sabotage. They're, they are essential texts, if mm. you like. But 
you know, and it's often seen that Technoclaxi and this one are a mess because they're a great band falling apart fundamentally on both. But that's precisely what I like about it. There's a real Royal Trucks like ugliness to what they do in this period. Mm. And I like it always when Sabbath in a sense, depart from that slow motion, heavy blueprint that they'd laid down. Mm. It's tracks where they start, I don't know, because they start using synths and stuff in this period. Mm. Um, and it's always really jarring, but really sulfurous and nasty as well. Yeah. Um, and what you're seeing in this period of Sabbath is really that their mutual animosity, because like, you know, they hate each other really by this point. Um, you know, they go to Toronto to record this LP in the middle of winter just because the Rolling Stones have recorded a really poor live LP in Toronto <laughs> the year before. It's all a mess at this point, but their mutual animosity is finding its way into the music, not in a confrontational way, but it, I don't know, it, it's like, you know how like you could be walking down a street and you'll see two kind of spice-addled, booze-addled guys threatening to bang each other out and they will bang each other out and then the next morning they're just you know next to each other still friends (laughs) it's like that that's what sabbath are like at at this point they're really massively dysfunctional but they're they're making they're still pals in a sense because they've got nowhere else to go Mm. and I, i you know i would never say that this period is comparable to the early period but there's pleasures to be had because you can always with sabbath hear the character of the people involved you know aussie the maniac with a kind of heart of gold a real heart of gold and that's key to Ozzy he's not just scary oh, or something he, give he, Neil he's, a couple of boxes of tea bags he did give me a couple but it's got nothing to do with that but he's <laughs> you know I mean this is a thing with Sabbath I'm not saying they're misunderstood as such but they are different than the heavy metal that they supposedly birthed mm. you know when I listen to heavy metal there's a glory in evil to it there's a delight in being satanic mm. and all of that Sabbath were never that band you know Geezer Butler who writes a lot of the lyrics is a terrified Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why so much of their music, you know, Ozzy sounds genuinely scared of the devil. And, yeah. and also they're big, big Beatles fans, right? They're, they're coming from a period yeah. in the 60s where they idolise and are obsessed with the Beatles. Yeah. So that comes into their songwriting. You can hear that a little bit here. Of course, you've also got Bill Ward, the implacable rhythmic force of the band who's mm. just amazing on this track the speed of what he's doing what fast i know yeah. but no. that's why he's had to take his shirt off yeah, <laughs> yeah. no he's just amazing and, and of course dominating in a sense the riffs which are the heart of their music is tony iomi who's the boss and a kind of fucking really angry scary one at that mm. um so even though this would be seen i guess as a bad period for Sabbath. And you, you can kind of see that Ozzy's almost laughing his way through this performance. Mm. Um, and they are about to fall apart completely yeah. um, because they've kind of lost the will, really. They've lost the desire to go on with it. But, um, and, and pretty soon, you know, Sabbath in, in the metal stakes, if you like, are going to be left behind by bands like Priest and Maiden, mm. i.e. bands that could play and were disciplined. And this band were never really that disciplined. Yeah. But this performance is great. I love yeah. Bill's look. He looks properly like he don't give a fuck. Yeah. He looks like he runs a vape shop in Brighton. <laughs> he with, does. With he looks back. startlingly modern, doesn't he? Yes, I think Bill so. Ward. He he looks like you know you, you could see him in a band now. Yeah, he looks like he's disguised as that bloke who had the sign that said "Get a brain, Morans." <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does. He does. But also, they've got that lovely look with the boots that Ozzy's wearing and stuff. They've got that oh. perfect kind. Of, this is where Spinal Tap comes from. To a certain extent yes. that look 
of both being a heavy rock band but being very colourful and almost having a glam touch to it. But um, yeah, Never Say Die is commonly derided as an album, but I think it, it warrants reinvestigation precisely because of its ugliness and its mm. depiction of a band falling apart but still something happens when these four guys are in a room together that's special and even in this top of the pops performance y- you get that you get that powerfully i think yeah yeah i'd never heard this song before and if you'd have played it to me without visuals mm. and said oh this is from 1978 i'd go oh this is one of them <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the yeah. new wave of british heavy metal bands who are uh, c- copping a lick off Sabbath. Yeah, but what you don't get, you see, with Sabbath ever is any kind of twin guitar virtuosity. No. Or any of that kind of... You know, there's there's little fantasy in Sabbath's music. It's mainly depressing and dark, but also just shot through with a real sappy innocence and love mm. that, that makes yeah. it really cherishable. I just think that... They're such a, well, uh, they're, they're, you know, Lizzie were one of the highlights of this show. And I, I think this is the sort of second big highlight for me. Yeah, I always feel like it's almost like metal skipped a generation or Sabbath skipped a generation. If you listen to like that new wave of British heavy metal stuff, it sounds more like they grew up listening to, to Deep Purple and stuff like that, mm. where there's almost like a progginess to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like you hear Sabbath much more in more recent metal stuff, where Definitely, they yeah. it went back to the roots of, you know, of just sludge, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. In, a, in the best possible sense. Yeah, I feel a sort of weird tribal local cultural identification with <laughs> Sabbath and understanding. I can't explain it, but there is some peculiar thread there. You know what I mean? It's like, like there's a, I'm dangling from it and then somewhere <laughs> along there's Aussie and every other flat vowel chip munching subhuman from the, <laughs> from the workshop of the world, which is Birmingham. Not to be confused with Worksop, which is the Birmingham of the world. <laughs> Uh, but I do feel it, even though I didn't grow up a metal fan, but three quarters of my middle school were obsessed and Ozzy was a god. So I grew up hearing that music as a soundtrack in the same way that I grew up with the charts as a soundtrack, right? Yeah. And even if I didn't necessarily like it all, I didn't necessarily like what was in the charts, I heard it. And, you know, in the same way that I would go back to the charts at the time when I was a little bit older and discover, actually, I did like much more of it than I thought at the time. Same thing happened with heavy rock. But that sense of local connection only happens with the Sabs, right? Not really with Duran Duran or Dexys or ELO or any of the other good groups to come out of Birmingham or the West Midlands. It's just Sabbath. I can't explain it. There's just something about the, the, the sort of wall-eyed insistent misery of it (laughs) but but good natured underneath you know what I mean Mm. no that's it because whenever I've seen Aussie live or Sabbath live you know with songs like this I mean like like you said you know that first track Black Sabbath that they ever did is still properly a terrifying bit of music because of Aussie's vocals and stuff but whenever I've seen him do it live or Aussie doing it live he doesn't get a pained expression on his face he claps he claps constantly when he plays like he's all about getting a crowd going you know what i mean and and there's that mm. odd mix with sabbath that 
you know, definitely they could not have come from any other place. They could not have come from any other place than Birmingham. When you when you no. sit in certain parts of Birmingham, when you sit in a pub in Birmingham, for instance, and you look out the window and you just feel encased in concrete, like yeah. like the concrete goes to the sky and you can't see a fucking lick of green anywhere. That's the Sabbath sound, and and it, they they could not have come from anywhere, regardless of whether Tony Iommi's you know industrial accident affected his riffing or whatever, because he had to have those bits of plastic on his fingers. They yeah. have to come from Birmingham, definitive Brum band, I would say, and something that Birmingham are in a good way, you know, proud of. I mean, where I work was opened by Tony Iommi, and although he's my, <laughs> although he's my least favourite Sabbath member, but just. Punch it or something. <laughs> no, you, you, I, I wouldn't trust anyone who didn't like Sabbath in a way. Yeah. Mm. That was the story when Alan Jones interviewed Ozzy a few years after Tony <laughs> Omi beat him up and he said, uh, oh yeah, last, last brush I had with a member of your band, he punched me in the face. And apparently Ozzy just shrugged and went, yeah, but that's Tony, fist for brains. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love Ozzy. Yeah. I love him so much. Yeah. He, and the more out of his nut he gets, like the more lovable he is, you know. Mm. It's like the 11 year old boys that I knew when I was 11 thought he was a god, but the mm. whole point was that he wasn't a god or a devil, yeah. you know. Mm. And it's easy mm. to forget for years, a lot of people seriously thought Ozzy was a devil worshipper. <laughs> um, even after he'd said the only black magic Sabbath ever got into was a box of chocolate, um, he was an. An awkward and slightly unhappy geek who transformed himself in, into magic without losing his identity as an awkward and unhappy geek. In fact, that was the key to the magic. Um, mm. But by this point here, he's more like the solo Aussie, sort of mm, uh, yeah, yeah, wild-eyed yeah. and overdressed, you know. And yeah. if you prefer a genuine, real-life, alienated boozer giving you pure doom feeling direct <laughs> then the early sabbath aussie is vastly preferable but this one i mean at least he makes sure he gives you a show yeah um yeah, there's yeah. there's something peculiarly heroic about him although the other members of black sabbath at this time would have disagreed yeah. but yeah. he's not just he's not just an old pro you know what i mean it's like that's that's the thing he's no kind of pro at all that's the problem. It's just here. This is real. This is what he's communicating. He's incoherent and ludicrous and all over the place. And this song is, it's no paranoid and it's no killing yourself to live or any of these songs which mean something mm. where it's like he's singing from the heart. But it's still great because even in this state, he is a perfect vessel for communicating desperation in a pure and unself-conscious way he's just this open channel um and you know who can gripe that nowadays that channel is closed and he's all showbiz because fucking hell it nearly killed him well quite you know yeah, what I mean? yeah yeah and at this point i mean he's already wearing t-shirts that say blizzard of oz on it i'm not saying he's yeah. you know already conscious of the fact that he's going to be a solo star pretty soon and solo Ozzy is different than than sabbath yeah, Ozzy. yeah yeah but um you know, it, it's it, it's that voice. It's that pitiable whine that yeah. he's got. Mm. It's, it, it's, he's one of the all-time greats. And this band are one of the all-time greats. This is their kind of like, this is where I depart company because I'm not interested in Dio era Sabbath or anything like that. Oh, yeah. Nobody should be. And I'm very, I'm the one thing that does piss me off about Sabbath is their later treatment of Bill Ward. But um, 
so I'm quite doctrinaire yeah. about Sabbath. It is these first sort of six, seven, eight albums, but they're all fucking essential. And Technical Ecstasy and this one, they've got some really interesting shit on because they're one of those bands. They've been playing long enough whenever, like Lizzie, when they plug in and play, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Why are they on top of the pops? Well, that's, I mean, that it's, I, you know, when you sent me this episode out, I had no idea Sabbath were on it at all. Yeah. And it blew my fucking mind. Because I, I knew their um, 1970 appearance, wasn't it, for Paranoid, I think. Yes. Um, but I had no idea that this even existed. It's a real mind blower from this period because there's not a lot of live footage apart from when they go on tour with Van Halen and that sort of starts getting yeah. filmed. But um, yeah, it's amazing. That, it is amazing, isn't it, that they did it. That they, they thought... Well, it's amazing on- that they were asked... Because there's no reason for Top of the Pops to get them on because this song's not even come out yet. And it's amazing that they accepted. Yeah. You'd assume that, oh, they'd be like Led Zeppelin, don't bother with singles, or oh, not doing Top of the Pops, it's beneath us. Mm. Are we going to get our stone engine there? I, th- I think it's possible that someone at the record company made an advance to Top of the Pops because maybe they knew this album was going to be a hard push. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, uh, you know, the prestige of having a serious rock band like Black Sabbath on your show <laughs> could have could have come from that direction. I don't know. Can't imagine Tony Blackburn pushing for it. Well, no. you can see his reaction at the end, can't you? Yeah. Um, so condescending. I think this is a really good song. I was quite taken aback by it and just gave me another prod to investigate Sabbath a bit more. Yeah, yeah. I've always shunned them. But as a pop crazed youngster of 1978 i would have looked at them and gone all oh, fucking hell don't they know it's 1978 i mean ozzy's got one of roger daltrey's casts off <laughs> with so much fucking fringing yeah. and when i watched this my instant reaction was ozzy osborne is the dead spit in this episode of b smith yeah. <laughs> imagine if b smith was in a fucking metal band how brilliant that would be they'd call him lag basher <laughs> I'd wear a fucking like Basher t-shirt. And then I start, because it's lockdown, I start thinking about recasting Prisoner Soul Block H with pop icons. <laughs> and I've, I've got a list here. Yeah. And I've made a pretty decent sort. So, Ozzy Osbourne, B. Smith. Mm-hmm. Right. The obvious one, Ian Brown, Lizzie Birdsworth. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't get him, Ronnie Wood. Yeah. Andy Scott of Sweet in his later years. Doreen Burns. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Rod Stewart, Margot Gaffner, <laughs> David Sylvian, Chrissy Latham. Yes. Yeah. And Fish, Judy Bryant. Yeah. Now, I need yes, to cast some yeah. of the screws and Erica Davison, but, you know, I think I've got the basis of a really solid pop star cast for Prisoner Cell Block H. Yeah, I think you're right. So, any of the pop craze youngsters want to chip in on that? I mean, fucking hell, there's nothing else to do, is there? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is this is great. This performance is great. Yeah, well, someone should have told the audience because they're not... I exactly. Mean, there's, yeah. There's yeah, a yeah. few girls bopping like it's a disco tune. Yeah, um, and gassing on about lads and shoes and what they read about in Jackie that week. Yeah. And there's a couple of lads on the right-hand side in, wearing Mickey Pierce hats. Yeah, well, there's there's late 70s boys sulking. Because this is yeah. a bloody dinosaur band. There's one yes. lad, he's got short hair, black leather bomber jacket, white trousers and pumps. Yes, like hands, with his hands in his pockets, just fucking yeah, defiantly about. deep, defiantly deep in his pockets. Mm. Uh, yeah. He's point blank refusing to lift the soul of 
either <laughs> shoe off the ground because the clash wouldn't have approved. And he just ambles about, doesn't he? Like he's at a car boot sale or he's, he's poking a worm with his shoe. <laughs> they should be ashamed of themselves. I don't think... Yeah. I, I would... I forgive Ozzy everything. Do you know what I mean? I forgive him the fucking... The, the Osbournes and all that sort of stuff mm. because who wants... Really, who wants to spend more than a decade with ghosts and demons howling around you? You know what yeah. I mean? And shooting up yeah. your throat every time you open your mouth to sing or drink. Yeah. You know, it's, all he ever wanted was to be like the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good for him. So the following week, Never Say Die entered the charts at number 41, then soared 13 places to number 28, then dropped three places to number 31, but then jumped back up 10 places to number 21, which put them back on top of the pops again. And this time they were put in a dressing room next door to Bob Marley and the Whalers, who Ozzy claimed was brandishing the biggest spliff he'd ever seen in his life. And the band had to explain to the Whalers that Bill Ward hadn't put his hair into braids to take the piss out of them. That was just his look at the time. Can you imagine <laughs> yeah. being witness to an argument between Black Sabbath and Bob Marley and the Whalers? <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> Some poor BBC commissioner's got to fucking break that up. But I think, I mean, Sabbath ended up just being utterly astonished by the way Marley was able to smoke just a big fucking joint, but put in th- such an amazing performance when he actually come to yeah. come to do it, blew him away. Because we all know that we just make Sabbath cough, as you can hear at the beginning of Sweet Leaf. So, you know. <laughs> the follow-up, Hard Road, got to number 33 in October of this year, their last single before Ozzy Osbourne was sacked. <laughs> Oh, man, it it kills me to have to stop this part of episode 54 right here. But stop it, I must, because we've still got a long way to go. And let me tell you, there are some very heavy hitters coming in the final part of this episode of Char Music. So let's all reassemble tomorrow. My name's Al Needham. On behalf of Taylor Parks and Neil Kulkarna, stay pop crazed. Sharp music. GreatBigOwl.com Hello, my darlings. It's me, Anna Mann, actress, singer, welder. Gotta have a backup. I've been in everything, my darlings, and I've been cut from most things. However, I will not be cut from one thing, and that is my own podcast, Talking to Actors with Anna Mann, where I meet those rarest of creatures, the actors. That's Talking to Actors on The Great Big Owl.